And please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In your bulletin, there's also an insert. It has the main section of verses we'll be looking at today, but we'll be broadening our horizons a little bit because this is part of a topical textual series on lamentations for today. We start out in the book of Lamentations and looking at the hope that the gospel brings for sufferers. And we talked about what a lament is and why we lament. We lament because something or someone we love is taken from us, or we lament when something we dislike or hate is brought to us. And so, lamentations are part of life in this fallen world. The fall brought us into an estate of sin and misery, our catechism says, and Jesus was sent as our Redeemer to deliver us out of the estate of sin and misery and into an estate of salvation. Jesus the Redeemer. When we're looking at five different facets of the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ, redeeming us from the suffering that comes as a result of living in a sin-cursed world, and the sin that we all struggle against that we need saving from. The first week we looked at Lamentations 3 and the hope that we have. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies, they never come to an end. Great is His faithfulness. My hope is in you who is my portion. Our hope in the midst of suffering. Today we're looking at grace for our suffering here from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In future weeks we'll look at suffering and joy. And joy from 1 Peter 1, suffering and salvation from Romans 5, and suffering and eternity from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But can you follow along as I read 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 to 12? I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but God does know. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray together. Father, Thank You for Your Word, and I thank You for Your servant, Paul, and the testimony of his life. Lord, I thank You for the hope that we have in the midst of sufferings and trials and difficulties of all sorts. 
And I thank you for the grace that is ours in Christ to face the suffering that is promised us in this life. And Father, I pray that as we learn through suffering, as we grow through suffering, I pray that we would give glory to you. I pray that you would transform our complaining and grumbling into genuine lament that understands your character, your purpose, your plan to save us from the sin-cursed world and from our own sin. Lord, teach us today. Equip us for the suffering that we may be in the midst of, or prepare us for the suffering that we will face in the future. Lord, thank You for Your good and perfect Word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can you relate somewhat to Paul and his sufferings, the weaknesses, insults, and hardships maybe, the persecutions and calamities maybe to some degree? It's interesting as we see this description of suffering in Paul, how he uses this general term, a thorn in the flesh. Now, any of you who have taken the uh, leadership training class with Pastor Tony here at Redeemer has had to do a captor Bible study on this passage and on what the thorn in the flesh means. Why would Paul use such a vague term to describe such a significant thing in his life? Why, why wouldn't he be more specific? Well, plenty of ink has been spilled in the pursuit of what is this talking about? Is it talking about a physical malady, some sort of eye disease or physical uh, sickness or illness, some disability that he had? Or was it a person? Was it a relational thorn, someone who was a in-person, in-the-flesh thorn in the flesh? Was it some emotional problem or difficulty that he had. We, we're not told. We're, we're not given the specifics, but when we try to find in particular what in Paul's life relates, we're forced to, to think about what it could be in his life and maybe then what is the type of thing that we could call a thorn in our flesh. And I believe that's the answer to why was Paul so general about this thorn in the flesh? Why didn't he give us a specific answer? Well, it forces you and me, the reader, to have to ask hard questions, to analyze, to investigate not only the Word of God, but our own lives and the suffering that we face. And in doing so, we find some answers. We find, I think, some grace that God has for us. And in this general thorn in the flesh category, no one is excluded from it. You can't say, well, that was Paul, but me, that doesn't apply. Let's look at this passage, and I think we're going to find a purpose in our suffering. We're going to find grace to handle suffering, and we're going to ha find contentment in the midst of suffering as well. We need to determine first the, the severity and maybe the scope of Paul's suffering to have a better handle on what, what exactly this thorn in the flesh is. I think next to Jesus, Saul's suffering is probably the most intense of any New Testament character that you will read. 2 Corinthians 6, he says, As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, but by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, 
Can you relate to any of those in your life? Maybe the afflictions and hardships, maybe a calamity has hit your life. You weren't expecting it. Doubtful on the imprisonments or riots. All of us have troubles at work, our labors. Some of you have sleepless nights and difficulties. In 2 Corinthians 11, we see some more of what Paul describes. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, lest one. Uh, the custom was for punishment meted out by the Jewish authorities. Someone was given not 40 lashes, but one less than that so that they didn't overpunish and they counted correctly. Three times I was beaten with rods. This was the Roman form of punishment that Paul endured. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Wow, he had it rough. He had it difficult. And he said, on top of all this, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He's concerned about those churches he helped found and plant on his missionary journeys and the believers along the way that he's helped to establish these strongholds of the gospel. And he's concerned for them, concerned for the persecutions they're facing, concerned for the false teachers that were creeping in. He just had a lot on his heart, a lot that happened to him physically, a lot emotionally, many relationships that could bring stress and pressure and are forms of suffering in his life. Again, like next to Jesus, the sufferings of Paul are, are kind of mind-blowing. But here in chapter 12, Paul also goes on to say that he received some blessings like no other, uh, some blessings that none of us have received. Look at, again at 12.1, I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Paul is in a third-person way, speaking of himself, that he was this person who had this vision where he was caught up into the third heaven. And in the Jewish mind of thinking, it was the first heaven was where the, the, the birds and the butterflies flew around. The second heaven is where the, the stars and the moon and the sun were situated. The third heaven, that's where God is. That's the dwelling place and abode of God. And to go to be in God's presence. He goes on to call it paradise. It's the place which, which is described in Luke as Abraham's bosom, the, the, the very throne room of heaven. That's where Paul got to see, and not only see, but he, but he got to hear. In verse 4, he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. He was so privileged to see and to hear what he saw. And that could easily go to his head if you've been somewhere special, and you were so excited that you got to be there. You got to go to that concert and see live and in person. And you kind of bring that up in a conversation or drop a hint that you were there or, oh yeah, I saw that. Oh yeah, I heard that. I, I did that. It, it's kind of easy for us to potentially get conceited about that. Yeah, but none of you have been to heaven and heard the things that Paul heard. Those are amazing things. So, 
in the midst of this, verse 7, we see the purpose for this thorn in the flesh. Why does God bring suffering into our lives? There's at least four reasons here. He says in verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And then at the end of verse 10, it says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. The first purpose for suffering in our lives is to keep us from being conceited. Twice. Twice he brings that up in verse 7. So to keep me from being conceited. This fits in with what James teaches in chapter 4 of James, that he gives more grace to us. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Sometimes God brings suffering in our lives to humble us, to bring us low to cause us to lament and to mourn and to weep and to draw near to the Lord. Grace abounds when I decrease and He increases. I love John the Baptist's just kind of motto for life, it seems, that He must increase and I must decrease. And God brings suffering in our lives to, to keep us from increasing and to bring us low again. A second purpose of suffering in our lives is to harass us. And that's Satan's purpose. Do you see in verse 8, uh, or the end of verse 7, that this thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to harass me. Now, is this thorn in the flesh from God or from Satan? I think the answer is yes. But Satan has a purpose for it that's different than what God's purpose is. And God's purpose overrides Satan's purpose as it was in the book of Job. Remember in Job 1 where it says that the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him in all the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. He's got it good, God. If he didn't have it so good, I don't think he would bless you. I don't think he would be the same. So Satan says, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that is in your hand, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he brought those calamities, into Job's life to test him, to get him to fall, to get him to stumble. His purpose was to harass one of God's chosen servants so that he would curse God and walk away. God's purpose in that was to test his servant Job to show the genuineness of his faith and devotion to the Lord. God permits Satan to afflict his righteous servant and then he turns the affliction for His good purposes. He can do that because He is sovereign over all things. Remember Joseph and his brothers. 
his brothers wickedly sold him into slavery. At the end of his life, when Joseph sees his brothers again, he says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. See, the devil has his purposes, but God overrides those. He is sovereign even though over those. To think of a more contemporary example, some of you, most of you are probably familiar with Johnny Erickson Tata, who as a young person dove into a shallow uh, body of water and ended up breaking her neck, becoming a quadriplegic in a wheelchair for the, up until today. And as a young believer in Christ, she was rocked by this tragedy. This suffering had a, a huge impact on her, but her perspective on what the purpose of this suffering was might surprise you. She says, in her own words, likewise, while the devil's motive in my disability was to shipwreck my faith by throwing a wheelchair in my way, I'm convinced that God's motive was to thwart the devil and to use the wheelchair to change me and to make me more like Christ through it all. In short, one form of evil, suffering, is turned on its head to defeat another form of evil, my sin, all to the praise of God's wisdom and glory. What, what an attitude and perspective on suffering that, that God would throw that wheelchair in her way in order to sanctify her, in order to make her more like Christ. Another purpose that we see in this, and it may be a tangential purpose, but it comes from verse 8 where Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me. One purpose in suffering is to keep us praying. You will never pray more in your life than when you're in a time of suffering, of trial and tribulation. And that pleading to the Lord, three times he pleaded. I wonder if that's just a, a summary statement for all the many times that Paul made a conscious prayer to God, Lord, take this away. And what's clear from this is it's not wrong to pray for God to relieve suffering. God uses the suffering and pain for His purposes, but God doesn't take pleasure in giving us suffering and pain just in what it produces in our lives. And so, when we are given this suffering, we're driven to pray. When you wake up in the night concerned about a loved one or a friend who's having marital strife or a family member who's undergoing cancer treatments or a person at work who's struggling with their grown adult children or any number of issues of suffering in, in your own life or in the life of somebody else, you're drawn to talk to the Lord about it, to plead with Him, to pray to Him. I can't do anything about this. God, you'll have to. It brings us to the end of ourselves so that He can be clearly at work in our situations. Fourthly, the purpose that we see in this passage for suffering is so that God can be glorified. The end of verse 9, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This thorn was given so that the power of Christ would come and rest upon me. And when people see the power of Christ at work, He gets glory for that. God's design, John Piper says, is to make you a showcase for Jesus' power. You get to show how powerful Jesus Christ is. In your suffering, in your weakness, His power gets magnified. 
In John 9, Jesus passed by a man who was blind from birth, and remember his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned that this man, this man or his parents that he was born blind? And I love Jesus' answer. He says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God may be displayed in him. And it's not just blind people, born blind, that display the power of God at work. You display the power of God at work when your weakness is evidenced and God's grace is sufficient. You bring glory to God in those situations. And we, we can recite the first catechism question that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But how? Even in suffering? Yes, we show God's power in the midst of that suffering. Piper goes on to say about this passage, the deepest need that you and I have in weakness and adversity is not quick relief, but the well-grounded confidence that what is happening to us is in part part of the great, greatest purpose of God in the universe, the glorification of the grace and power of His Son. The grace and power that bore Him to the cross and kept Him there until the work of love was done, that's what God is building into our lives. That's the meaning of weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamity. The purpose is so that the Son would be glorified. Now, where do we find sufficient grace for suffering? Verse 9, he brings it from the purpose to this, to this grace. He pleaded again and again and again, but the Lord didn't take away the thorn. But He gave him this word. And He gives you this word that my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I spent the week meditating on that and trying to parse it out and break it down. My grace is sufficient. Whose grace is it? Is it God's grace plus mine? Is it God's grace plus my strength? It's not. It's my grace is in and of itself completely sufficient. It takes care of it all. It's not my grace plus your strength, your power, your craftiness, or your toughness. It's not my grace plus your frugalness, your bank account, your budget, your 401k, your credit cards. It's not God's grace plus a best friend, a mother, a pastor, somebody to talk to. It's not my grace plus your training, your experience, your street smarts. God's grace is sufficient for you in the midst of suffering. You know, this grace is made for the power of God to be made perfect in weakness. The grace is sufficient for you, and that power is made perfect. That word perfect is the same word that Jesus spoke from the cross when He said, it is finished. It's complete. It's fulfilled. It's perfected. We see that the power of God is given to all those who are weak, who cry out to Him. In Isaiah 40, have you not known, have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable, and He gives power to the faint. 
and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. His grace. His grace is found in a person. It's found in Christ. He's found in that great high priest who is in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. He's the one who's able to sympathize with our weakness as He took on human flesh. And as Hebrews 4 says, that He was in every respect tempted as we are without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The subject of grace, this term grace, is kind of an enigma to us sometimes. And I think that suffering helps to define and clarify what grace is, how grace shows up in our lives, and it shows up in the person of Jesus Christ. It's exemplified in His life. So that even in the midst of suffering, we can find contentment. Look at, again at, the, at verse 9. Therefore, on the basis of what he's been told directly by the Lord, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness, therefore what? I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There is a power to find contentment. And that power to find contentment is in our union with Christ. Because we are, by faith, connected with Christ in His death and His resurrection. See, Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians thir- or 2 Corinthians 13, the very next chapter, to describe how this correlation works. In verse 3, he says, Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, He's not weak in dealing with you, but He is powerful among you. For He was crucified in weakness, but He lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in Him, but in dealing with you, we will live with Him by the power of God. You see how this works. Examine yourselves, he goes on to say, to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? In the midst of suffering, you're going to see the faith that unites you to Christ empowers you for new living. The faith that you have in Christ ensures that He is in you, at work in you, dying to sin and living for righteousness. And and this is the connection that Paul makes in Romans 6. And I love how uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, in one of his capstone sermons on spiritual depression, spent an entire series of messages talking about Romans chapter 6, verse 5, and how it relates to our suffering and our disappointment and our sorrow. He says, uh, Paul says in Romans 6, 5, for if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Being united with Christ 
We can count on the persecutions and the sufferings and the difficulties that Jesus promised His followers are going to have. But He also, by His once-for-all death for that sin and His resurrection to new life, has given you the power and the hope for new living, a new perspective, a new perspective that, that involves contentment. How can you be content with the suffering that you're facing? When that thorn is digging into your flesh, how can you find that as something you could be contented with? Hear me again. You can plead that the Lord would remove it, maybe just three times according to Paul. But when He doesn't remove it, when He decides that you're going to have it and that His grace will be sufficient for you and that His power is now going to be made perfect in your weakness... Can you take a contentment in that reality? Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a small booklet called the, the Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And I think it was in that book that he said, Two men may have the same affliction. To one it shall be as gall and wormwood, yet it shall be wine and honey and delightfulness and joy and advantage and riches to the other. This is the mystery of contentment, not so much by removing the evil as by metamorphosing the evil, by changing the evil into good. Grace gives a man an eye to see the love of God in every affliction as well as in prosperity. He metamorphosizes, or as we sang in our hymn, transmuting earthly sorrow for heavenly gain. He, he can give you a different perspective on your suffering so that you're not grumbling and complaining, but you're lamenting as a way to bring glory to God, as a way to show your dependence upon Him and His grace, to show forth His power and His ability to save. In his book on midlife crises, uh, Paul Tripp wrote uh, a book called Lost in the Middle. And in that, he describes the kind of grace that we need in the midst of suffering, uh, this grace that is more grace that is given. He says this, I am deeply convinced that we need to be preaching the theology of uncomfortable grace to one another. Peter says that the trials that grieve us are trials of grace. God is patiently and perseveringly doing exactly what He promised. He's delivering us from sin and forming us into the image of His Son. I'm persuaded that many times we're wondering where God's grace is and crying out for it, but we're actually getting it. The problem is that we are seeking the grace of release when God knows what we need is the grace of refinement. During this now period of preparation, God's grace will come to us again and again in uncomfortable forms. This is where we tend to have an agenda conflict with our Lord. We don't tend to be very excited about being around people who don't love and affirm us. We get excited about children who grow up and do exactly what is right. We get excited about making plans that eventually come true. We get excited about physical health. We get excited about investments that have a good return. We get excited about having a safe, successful, stress-free, and predictable life. The problem with all these things is not that they're a wrong desire, but the problem is that we've settled for far too little. And we're surprised, shocked, and disappointed when God shakes them from us in order to refine us. You see, God has planned more and better things for us than we would want for ourselves. 
the suffering in your life may be an indication that you've grown too content with the things of this life. The, the graces and blessings that He bestows on us, that He's so good to give us. And when He gives us those things and we start to hold on to them and treasure them and love them more than we love the giver of those good graces, then He will do what it takes to shake us free from them. When they become those idols that we're devoted to, He will pluck them from us so that we are in utter dependence on Him. And that's a sign of His grace. His grace is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in your weakness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that You love us. As Your children, You care for us and You even discipline us at times for our good, for Your glory. Lord, some of us are in the midst of a time of suffering and trial that seems overwhelming, too difficult for us to bear up under, and we cry out to You, Lord, would You relieve us from the suffering, the distress. And Lord, if You don't relieve the suffering and distress, would You, by Your grace, transform our perspective on it? And would You give us a, a contentment that is supernatural? We'd never come to this on our own. We'd never come to the conclusion that you love us if we simply based it on our experiences and how we feel about them. Give us a knowledge of your purpose and your plan. Give us your sufficient grace in the midst of suffering, Lord, and make us content with what you have ordained. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.